Are you a, a, a fan of history? You like reading biographies and history? Uh, I do. Uh, perhaps many of us do. One of the difficulties with history, of course, is that even though we have books that describe what happened and who lived and what the circumstances were like, Unless we were actually there looking at it through our eyes, it's difficult to compare what things were like 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago, right? Because things change, perspective change. It's difficult to, to really know. And so the last two years or so, we have been wringing our hands about how difficult this pandemic has been as if this was the worst thing ever to befall the human race. And this may be the most difficult thing that we've had to live through, but really, is this the most difficult thing? Maybe, maybe not. That's the the challenge of history, is, is just trying to figure out how the current circumstances compare with others. But be that as it may, this is, this is a challenging time. And it's not just a pandemic, the health issues. But circumstances in our world have changed so dramatically over hundreds of years that in many other regards, this is a really difficult time. And, and perhaps made especially difficult by circumstances that have led so many people in our world to completely dismiss God. There was a time when people didn't have explanations for things, and so God got all the credit and all the blame for everything that happened. Oh, but we've got explanations for all of that now, don't we? We know exactly why bad things happen and good things happen. And God doesn't get any credit. We don't need a God. We can figure this out for ourselves, right? But with no God, have things gotten any better? And so I I can't help but think that there are an awful lot of people perhaps uh, silently wringing their hands, wondering, you know, what's going to be the source of help? How is this pandemic going to end? Who's going to solve the hatreds around the world? Who's going to bring an end to warfare? Where is God? I've been thinking about this past week, and especially I've been grateful for how well poised the Church of the Nazarene is for times such as this. We are a holiness people. Another way of saying that is that we are people who understand the optimism of grace. Perhaps better than most other denominations. The optimism of grace, the grace that saves us, the grace that sanctifies us, the grace that sustains us, the grace that will eventually glorify us when we die and spend the rest of eternity with him, we are not people who have a pessimistic attitude about sin and, and grace. We are people who are living in the optimism of what God can accomplish, even in difficult times like this. We are not people who should be wringing our hands, should we? 
We are not people who should be saying, where's the hope? Where's the solution to these problems, should we? No, because we believe in a God who not only forgives sin, but transforms people so that we can live above sin. And that we can communicate that, to pass that on to other people, to give them the optimism of grace as well. I have been preaching for the last number of weeks, several weeks, on this subject of purity plus mission equals holiness. I've been talking about the doctrine of entire sanctification, the cardinal doctrine of the Church of the Nazarene, that teaches that God goes beyond just forgiving our sins, the past. I have tried to communicate that holiness begins with the fact that we are made in the image of God. We are called to be His image in the world, to reflect His image, His glory, His power, His love, His grace into the world. We are that angled mirror that reflects the grace of God into the world around us. And because we are made in the image of God, then it follows that we are capable by His grace of living a holy, God-like, Christ-like image of life, right? If we're made in the image of God, and God is about the business of restoring that lost image, then we can be like Christ. I got one retired pastor saying amen. This is going to be a heavy lift, okay? Made in the image of God, designed to reflect the image of God, having the capacity to be made holy by God, who wants to restore his image. I've been talking about the fact that God's intent is that all people in this world should be, in our, God, by God's design, are invited into this holy kingdom family of his. All people regardless of any factors that may seem to render them, render them unsuitable. Oh, we can point at an awful lot of people and say, well, they can't become like us. They can't be holy. They can't become like Christ. No, I'm sorry. That's, they're just too far gone. But that's not what God says, does he? For God so loved the world that whoever, Right? Whoever, nobody is excluded from that invitation. Holiness, I have been saying, is the sum of moral purity and the divinely empowered mission of embodying this transforming love of God before all people that we meet and spend time with. But the perpetual danger is that we'll allow purity and mission to get out of balance. Purity plus mission equals holiness if they're balanced with one another. But they have a tendency to get out of balance. Sometimes we emphasize solely the personal purity part of that. Or sometimes the emphasis, more recently in the Church of the Nazarene, the emphasis has been on mission without an awful lot of talk about purity. But if it gets out of balance, personal purity becomes legalistic self-righteousness, doesn't it? God has saved and sanctified me. Why can't you keep up? 
Or it gets out of balance and our mission, our pursuit becomes just trying to establish a holy club and and what goes on inside the four walls of this building is all that matters to us. That's out of balance too, isn't it? Our denomination is committed to this all-inclusive holiness mission of God. Even though there have been times that we as a denomination have gotten things out of balance sometimes, we do believe that purity plus mission equals holiness. And maybe those of you that are of a mathematical bent have appreciated that formula, right? Purity plus mission but holiness. But holiness is not an academic or mathematical formula. If we've gotten holiness out of balance, there's a good chance that it's because we've lost sight of the central role that love plays in holiness. It's not just about right behavior that we're able to muster by our own hard work. There's an element of love. Love is the essential quality, the essential catalyst in holiness. This is why Jesus articulated in his great commandment, and if you want to join me in Mark chapter 12, we'll read this. Jesus articulated the role of love in this greatest commandment. I read the version from Luke last week. This week it's from Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 28. One of the teachers of the law, most likely a Pharisee, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Jesus had been debating with other people. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Which is the most important commandment? The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And then the man replied, Well said, teacher. Kudos to you, Jesus. Let me pat you on the head for giving a good answer. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifice. Is there a condescending teacher voice that you hear in there as this man replies to Jesus' answer to his question? Then what kind of a tone of voice do you hear when Jesus responds? When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of heaven. You're not far from the kingdom of heaven. This interesting conversation, just from the the things that I'm reading into their words and what I hear is the tone of voice there. Well said, teacher, you're right in saying... This is a a teacher of the law who's treating this conversation as if it were a classroom discussion, right? He's treating this conversation academically. 
What's the most important commandment? You've got a lot of options. What's your answer going to be to my question? This is a pop quiz, Jesus, and I want to hear what you're going to answer to this question. This is strictly an academic conversation for this teacher of the law. And when Jesus replies, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven, I I read this as a subtle rebuke, maybe a not so subtle rebuke to this teacher of the law, indicating that this is really not just a theoretical conversation. Theory will get you close to the kingdom of it, but it's love that takes you home. Purity might be best described in this great command as the God-given ability to love God. The word there that Jesus uses is the Greek word agape. And we know this differs from marital love. This differs from brotherhood love. This is the kind of love that is willing to lay down one's life for other, the benefit of other people. What does it mean to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? It means to be able to bear the image of God, to set aside your own sinfulness, your own desires, your own agenda, and love God wherever God leads, whatever God calls. To be able to love God is what purity is all about. Mission might be best described as our God-given ability to love our neighbor. And Jesus uses the same word for love here. How do we love our neighbor? We love our neighbor the same way Jesus loved us. We lay down our life for our neighbor. No greater love has anyone than this, that one lay down one's life for one's friends. Or enemies, for that matter. So purity is able to love God by his grace. Mission is able to love our neighbor by his grace. John Wesley is the theological father of our denomination, a Methodist, uh, the founder of of Methodism, an Anglican priest who left the Anglican church to preach to the people that weren't acceptable to the Anglican church out in the fields and on the street corners, the people that couldn't afford to rent their own pew. John Wesley's definition of holiness or entire sanctification, Christian perfection, is neither more nor less than pure love. What is holiness? Holiness is loving God, he says, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This implies that no wrong disposition, one contrary to love, remains in the soul, and get this, and that all the thoughts, words, and actions are governed by pure love. What is loving God? What is loving neighbor? According to John Wesley, it's all of our thoughts, words, and actions being governed by pure love. Not guilt, not duty, not striving, but love. So if the result of getting Purity and mission out of balance is either legalistic self-righteousness or a 
misdirected mission of trying to create a holy club, then the result of leaving love out of the equation is a sterile, powerless, fruitless holiness that can't change the thoughts and words and actions of our life. The holiness is neither a mathematical formula, nor is it a sterile theological debate. It's a Christ-given commandment. What is the greatest commandment? To love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Jesus commands us to love. Now, I, I don't know about you, but when's the last time you loved somebody just because you were told to love them? <laughs> Can love really be commanded? Yes, obviously, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God and love your neighbor, but really how effective is that at making you be able to do that, enabling you to do that? Some people, I'm sure, have become holiness Christians as a result of the theological discussions. And I'm sure that some people have become holiness Christians because Jesus commanded it. But how many of us became holiness Christians because of our experience, first-hand experience, of the love of God? I, I think of C.S. Lewis, who said that he was... Surprised by joy. Isn't that a great phrase? (laughs) This atheist who researched all of the theology, researched all of the doctrines, tried to convince himself that all of this might be true if he could just get all of the the pluses and minuses in life. And then he was surprised by joy. I think of John Wesley himself, who was striving his hardest, first to be a missionary in Georgia, and then to be a good Anglican priest, just striving to, to, to have this relationship with God, to get it all right, until finally one night, I think he was reading a commentary on the book of Romans, and his heart was strangely warmed. not talking about anything happening in his brain. He says, his, my heart was strangely warmed. So, yeah, theology is important and commands are important. But when it comes down to it in the final analysis, how are we to be made holy people? It's by God loving us. Surprising us with joy. Warming our hearts. Paul gets a little closer to this when in Ephesians chapter 5, and you can join me there if you'd like, in Ephesians chapter 5, he equates this relationship that human beings have with God to a marriage relationship. Okay, now we're getting someplace. We, we, can, we can understand marriage, right, for all of its ups and downs. So Paul, chapter 5, he begins a a longer section in, in verse 21 by saying, Submit to one another out of reverence 
for Christ. And then he's going to give some examples of what that submission looks like. He speaks to wives, but pick up in verse 25 as he's speaking to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, here he's drawing the parallel, in this same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. This one flesh marriage thing between men and women, this is a profound memory, but mystery, but that's not really what I'm talking about, he says. What I'm really talking about is Christ and the church. The relationship between Christ and the church is so similar to the relationship between a husband and wife. But then he says, you know, lapsing back into the thing that they might really understand. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. It's a lot of important words in this passage, aren't there? It begins with submit, and submission has a negative connotation in our culture, doesn't it? Submission sounds like servitude. Submission sounds like somebody exercising their rights over my rights. Submission sounds like somebody's going to try to keep me from enjoying the things that I enjoy. Somebody's going to make me do things that I don't want to do. I, 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 I swear, that's not what Paul is talking about here. And he illustrates that with this paragraph about husbands loving their how does a husband submit he submits by loving his wife the way Christ loved the church and how congregation did Christ love the church he died on a cross what does submission look like it means feeding the other person, giving nutrition to somebody else. It means strengthening them for their own benefit. It means caring for them with compassion. It means a transfer of loyalty from parents to spouse. Letting go of the past and recommitting in, the, in such a strong way to a, a new loyalty. At the end of this paragraph... He says, husbands are to love the wife and wives are to respect the husband. An acknowledgement that men and women aren't the same. Women need sacrificial love to know that they are being loved. Men need respect in order to know that they are being loved. 
Love comes in many different flavors. Let's pay attention. What does the other person need? So we've, we've talked about theology. We've talked about commandments. We've talked about a marriage analogy. But Paul's treatment is still a little bit on the academic side, if you ask me. So let's go back into the Old Testament to a picture that's infinitely more passionate than Paul's logical discussion about submission and love and husbands and wives. Let's go back to a book called the Song of Songs or the Canticle or the Song of Solomon. It's called different things in different translations of the Bible. It comes after Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes if you're looking for it back there. The Song of Solomon is a short love poem between a lover and her beloved. And those are the words, the titles that are used to describe this relationship. A lover and her beloved. And in the New International Version, they give you very helpful little headings. Who's saying this? The lover or the beloved? Or And then there's a kind of a chorus in there. The chorus of friends that are thrown in to, to be participating in this conversation. I'm not going to read it. I I invited you to read it before you came. How many of you did that? I didn't think so. Okay, so this afternoon, what is this, five, six chapters long, eight chapters long? It's not very long, and it's steamy. So read that this afternoon, okay? But some of the, the themes here, there's this passionate longing for each other. Often she's portrayed throughout this this poem as you know, wending her way through the streets of Jerusalem, passionately seeking her beloved. She can't do without him. You remember that feeling? You can't do without him. You can't do without her. I remember Lynn and I started dating, and it hadn't been very many months that her family went down to Disney World, and they didn't take me. And I think they were gone for a week. And I remember my heart breaking. I mean, only I'd been only dating this girl for a, a, a couple months. And, and the family goes away. She's gone for a week. And, and I'm just going through life like this. <laughs> Where is she? I'm not going to be able to live. Am I alone in this? Come on, let me see some hands. <laughs> I see where this is going. Okay, so in the Song of Songs, there's this passionate longing, a pursuit of the one that you love. With the hope that one day, one time soon, you'll be able to be united, that one flesh experience of unity. There's a recognition of beauty. I mean, there's just all kinds of sometimes steamy words in here an appreciation for one another and the beauty and the strength and the, the, the value that they, they hold uh, one another in, both the lover and the beloved, just a recognition of what a wonderful, passionate, beautiful person this is. And there's intimacy. Uh, did I already mention that? Is this, parents, is this a book you ever read to your children at bedtime? I didn't think so. I remember in college there was a a guy on my floor who was known to be 
not only an unbeliever, but a little bit, um, yeah, like that. And anyway, one revival service, he got saved. And one of his similarly tempered friends on the floor thought that the best discipleship that he should start with is reading the book of the Song of, Song of Solomon. Yeah. That's the kind of a book it is. It's a holy book. There's a holy love being described here. We're probably a little bit embarrassed of this. We probably get a little flushed in the face if we're having to have a conversation with anybody about this book. Not the kind of thing that we probably read to our children. When's the last time this book was discussed in your Sunday school class? I didn't think so. Yet the truth of the matter is that we collectively are the bride of Christ. We are the lover. And he is the beloved. That's a little challenging for many, if not most of us, to get our mind around what it means to be the bride of Christ. Perhaps women don't find it as difficult as men, but men are absolutely squeamish about this. How can I, a man, be the bride of Christ, a man? We collectively are the bride of Christ. John chapter 14, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's using a marriage analogy from Jewish culture. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and when I come back, I'm going to take you to be with me where I am. Jesus is building a place for his bride to reside for the rest of eternity. That's who we are. For a... So this this song is our song. And for a thousand years, the Song of Songs was the most commented book on in the Bible. For a thousand years, up until about 500 years ago, the Song of Solomon was the most commented on book in the Bible. The most preached from book in the Bible. Do you find that hard to believe? I have. 900 years ago, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, one of the great preachers of the church, wrote over the course of his adult preaching life, he wrote 86 sermons on this book alone. Now, I just want you to know, because I'm a little OCD and I keep track of these things, this morning, this is my 1,171st sermon. 1,171. Fred has probably preached far more than that because he was preaching in the days when it was not only Sunday morning but also Sunday evening. Killer, wasn't it, Fred? But I, this young buck, I've preached 1,171 sermons. The book from which I have preached the most sermons is Matthew's Gospel, 145 sermons. I have preached three sermons from the Song of Solomon. Bernard of Clairvaux preached 86 sermons. 
Because in those times, and Bernard in particular, interpreted the Song of Songs as a reference to the love between God and his bride. It was a metaphor, a picture, and an analogy of the kind of relationship that we can have with God. Described as God being so deeply in love with us that all he wants is for us to come back home and love him in return. I think it's kind of interesting. You know, we've had this this theology. Is that what gets us to holiness? Or is it a command? Is that what gets us to holiness? I think it's interesting that the Song of Songs fell out of favor with the dawning of the Enlightenment 500 years ago or so. One of the key foci of the Enlightenment, of course, is on having the right answer being able to understand everything that's going on and having the right answer. So much of the Reformation was designed around making sure that we believe the right doctrine. Maybe not as much emphasis on right relationship, but a strong emphasis on having the right answers, being able to pass the test. If you... No, if you knew that you were going to die tonight, do you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you would spend the rest of eternity with Christ? And how do I know if that's going to happen? Because I believe this, and I believe this, and I believe this, and I believe this, and I've been to catechism, and I've been to Sunday school, and I've got all the right answers. I will not fail the heresy test because I know the facts. That's in large part what the, the Enlightenment, the Reform, Protestant Reformation was all about. And so, a book of the Bible that's all about this passionate love between a lover and her beloved uh, can't possibly fit into here. But I would suggest to you this morning that this kind of passionate love captured in the Song of Songs is the kind of love that God wants to have with us and it's the only kind of love that can make us the kind of holy people that God wants to be. It's my testimony. I didn't know anything about Christianity. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I had never been through any kind of a Sunday school program that taught me the facts about Jesus. But one night... God tapped me on the shoulder and he said, David, I love you. He didn't say, David, let me explain the Trinity to you. (laughs) He didn't say, let me take you through the book of Romans so you can understand what salvation is all about. He said, David, I love you. And it has transformed my life. I am not the person I was before that moment. And it's because God said in such a compelling way that he loved me. And because of that, I love him. And I want to be the kind of uh, lover that he intends me to be. A lover that looks like him, that acts like him, that thinks like him, that loves like him. God loves you more than you will ever possibly know. And I know that many, many of you know what it is to love God. 
But God loves you even more than that. God loves you more than you love your husband or your wife or your children or your parents. And God's love has the power to change us. God has the, God's love has the power to transform us from sinners into saints. I say God's love has the power to transform us from sinners into saints. Into holy people that look like Him. It's not a mathematical formula. It's not theology. It's not even a commandment. It's the love of God changing, transforming our lives. In the Church of the Nazarene, we believe that God has made us in His image and is in the process of remaking us in His image. We believe that God so loved the world that He has made it possible for all human beings, no matter how depraved, to be made holy. And love is both God's motivation and ours for living this kind of a love relationship. One of the paragraphs of the 10th article of faith in the manual of the Chanazarene, an art, a, a paragraph talking about, or an article talking about holiness and entire sanctification says this, we believe that entire sanctification is that act of God subsequent to regeneration by which believers are made free from original sin or depravity and brought into a state of entire devotement. Where does that word come from? To be devoted? That's a love word, isn't it? We believe that God brings us into a state of entire devotement to God and the holy obedience of love made perfect. I could argue theology with you all day long and it probably wouldn't make a difference in either of our lives. I could wag my finger and command you to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength all day long, and it probably wouldn't make a whole big difference, would it? But brothers and sisters, God loves you as, as a husband loves his wife. God is willing to lay down his life that we might be people that he wants us to be. He loves us that much. And he invites us to love him back. Father, as we near the end of this service today, I set aside arguing or pleading I set aside logic. I set aside anything that I could say or do or think. Lord, we invite you to love us. We invite you to change us so that we can love you back.
Lord, we are your bride. This may be the wedding day for one or two or three of us. This may be the point in our marriage where we take an additional step of consecration. To say, I haven't given you all of myself. I've been holding back. I've been reserving. I haven't trusted. I, I haven't been ready to leap in there. Lord, this may be the, the moment when we express our love for you at a deeper level than ever before. But Father, this is a moment, a love moment. And I pray that you would do the inviting. I pray that you would do the convincing. I pray that you would overwhelm us with your love for us. Lord Jesus, this love feast speaks to us down through 2,000 years this morning. We know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you love us no matter what we have done. You love us no matter how much we have sinned and how frequently we have sinned and how recently we have sinned and whether we've sinned since we became a believer or not. Lord, it doesn't matter. You love us. You don't just love us with brotherly love. You don't just love us with a marital love. You love us with agape love. And we thank you for your willingness to submit to us. To submit your life to us. Lord, we pray that by your grace today, we would be willing to submit our lives to you. Every last bit of our thoughts, our affections, our words, our actions, Lord, we consecrate them, we submit them to you. Fill us with your power to be your missionaries. Fill us with your purity to be able to love you and to be able to love our neighbor. We thank you for your grace this morning, Father. Christ that we pray.